I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> Attack ships on fire off the shore of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark nearly ten hours a day. Coming up on episode 57, music is science more than art, and it is the main code of the universe. That's next. Welcome to Verse Chorus Verse. With me is Evil Big Chief Jimmy. Evil, how are you doing tonight? I am doing really good. Excited to be back. You're wearing glasses. Yeah, sorry. Do I usually see you wear glasses? No, my contacts were uh, misbehaving and I couldn't find my eye drops and it's late and I've had them in all day. me off. You're such a fucking nerd tonight. I know. <laughs> No, I think that's a good thing because usually halfway through all the episodes, you end up having contact problems. Yeah. So start rubbing my eyes and getting all tired. You're just nipping it in the bud. Yeah. This is the first episode you've done in four or five episodes. Four. Yeah, it's been a spell. It's been since Woodstock. Yeah. The slow descent into madness. I brought Evil in for this one. Very excited for this one. Mm-hmm. Last year, Sven and I did an episode where we talked about jazz, where each one of us quote unquote taught the other person about a jazz artist. It might've been my favorite episode that I did. And we got really, really good responses from it. And I kind of want to start doing that same thing, taking turns, rotating through the season of doing that with jazz, but do it with scores for movies and classical composers. So we're doing scores tonight and I, we didn't do, I don't know how this happens on the show. We didn't do this on purpose at all, but can you think of two different moods during creation of scores? (laughs) Two. (laughs) Wow. No. Yeah. These are just such polar opposites. I didn't really think of it until I would study one, one night. And then I would study the other the other night and be like, holy shit, mm-hmm. this is so weird. So yeah, we, we're talking a couple of scores before we do that. And no, actually, there was a question I wanted to ask you. Because okay. you have two kids in your house yes. and a fiance. Yes. Here's my question. What, when you are studying, gets the most eye rolls and what the fuck are you listening to <laughs> uh, sort of stuff? Well... If it's known that I'm actually working on podcast stuff, I get kind of a pass. <laughs> yeah. I think honestly, my own personal music is what gets the biggest eye rolls. <laughs> like it's <laughs> if you know what I listen to primarily, it's like it's hard to just turn on at the gates and rock it out in the mornings when kids are getting ready for school. It doesn't really work. <laughs> 
What kind of music does your uh, significant other like? She is big into 90s hip hop. So she, she was, was pretty cool the with the Super Bowl. With the Super Bowl. <laughs> Yeah, she yeah. thought that was awesome. We have uh, some overlap. She really digs Rival Sons. Oh, nice. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, she's, yeah, I don't know, like 90s hip hop, some like mellower guitar rock stuff. Not really into country, which I'm okay with. Yeah. Doesn't really care for the metal. So, ah, yeah. Uh, they can't all be perfect. Yeah, no. Also, before we get into it, there's one other thing that I wanted to touch on. It's kind of died down now. We record these episodes and they come out like two to three weeks later. So it's hard to address anything. Sure. Be topical. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Rachel and I touched briefly on the last episode about the whole Spotify shit show. Mm -hmm. And I know even for me, since Rachel and I talked about it, my opinions have changed. Yeah. I'm not going to grill you or talk to you about the whole, I don't care about the Joe Rogan thing anymore. I feel like it's done already. Yeah, it's kind of played out. What I have been thinking a lot about lately is the whole Spotify in general. What I want to talk about is where the culture of streaming and listening to music is right now and how it's giving more people a platform to come out with things, but it's also killing mm-hmm. the ability to make a living off of music. Sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Do you listen to music pretty specifically on Spotify? I do now because of the podcast. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, I miss having my music on like an iPod. I actually, I miss my case of CDs from the 90s and early 2000s and flipping through it. I miss CD jewel cases with album art inside of them. I, I miss that. So I think I've just defaulted to using streaming services out of convenience, just like everyone else. I don't feel good about myself for that, but that's sort of where it is. I I like visual media. So if there's an artist with a a music video on YouTube, I would prefer that over Mm. Spotify. Even though Spotify kind of plays some visuals on some things, it's not the same. It's not the, the full package. That brings up a good point that I didn't think of. How much more does YouTube pay people than streamers like Spotify and Amazon? Do you know? I, Ooh, that's a good I know question. That, I know Spotify um, pays people like 0. 0.00003 cents per, what is it, like a thousand or a hundred streams? Yeah. I think Amazon is double that or triple, so like 0.0001, but it's still, you know, inconsequential. I don't know. But I, I have no idea what YouTube pays. That's a very good question. Um, Google used to have a service called Google Play, which I preferred. I remember, and I think you and I, when you and I were first talking about music, that's what I used. And I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. And there was music available to stream, but you could also purchase stuff too. You could like, hey, I like this artist. I want to buy this. Or in a lot of cases, there was parts of an artist's catalog that weren't available for streaming, but I could buy it and then stream it. Yeah. So it wasn't just available with the basic subscription. I had to actually go buy the album. I liked that because I'm assuming that they would get at least some portion of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But now they have a service called YouTube Music. They've gotten rid of Google Play. And I think that's sort of a Spotify-ish sort of thing. Yeah. There's YouTube, like like their video platform, and then YouTube Music, which are separate things. I'm not 
entirely sure how what the pay structure is. I'm sure it's not great. Yeah. If I want to support an artist, I try to buy merchandise. I feel like that's the best way to actually. That's the only way you can do it. Yeah. I, I mean, to even actually like, know that they're getting something. Yeah. I, even buying vinyl. You're not buying vinyl is no noble thing anymore either Mm-mm. because it's all going to the labels. And even then, it's it's crazy. I read an article the other day about the record store day, which they have twice a year or something like that. Yep. That is now fucking the vinyl industry and the independent vinyl stores because uh. all of these Adele's and Taylor Swift's and shit are pumping out yeah. hundreds and thousands of copies of vinyls to get into these record stores. Yeah, it's uh, it's all shit, everybody. <laughs> I mean, the monster eats everything at the end of the day. Really, that's what it is. <laughs> Do you think that we're at a pivot point for the entire music industry? This is what I'm getting at here. It's like I find mm-hmm. YouTubers who are super... I was watching this guy earlier. I'm going to butcher his name. It, I, I need to look it up. We'll throw it out there on social media. This guitar player, I had never seen him before. He is a monster and he's primarily just playing stuff on YouTube. He's just making videos. I feel like that's where rock music in particular has moved mm-hmm. to YouTube as a platform versus radio's dead, vinyl's a niche market, everything streams. Yep. There's no top 40s. There's no, I mean, there's, I'm talking like Casey Kasem style top yeah. 40s. It's all like, yeah, who has the most streams, you know? So I feel like certain genres have moved into different areas you know it's evolve or die at this point i mean much like a lot of things in the world it's gotten rich get richer poor get poor in that you've got your 200 artists that are going to get 100 million streams yep and they're going to make good money and everybody else is going to make shit yeah the only consistency the only constant which has been killed because of covid is being able to tour Touring. or play live i think that's kind of starting to come back but until this year what are your thoughts on bandcamp as a platform i love bandcamp yeah the only problem with bandcamp is people won't use it yeah. because you have to pay money right and rachel said something that was really that i really understood in the last time we were talking Because she was essentially talking about, in layman's terms, you know, you can bitch all you want about how terrible Walmart is or how terrible Amazon is. And they are. But the bottom line is, we're not all fucking rich. Sure. I've been poor enough many times in my life where I didn't have a choice to shop at Walmart. I didn't feel good about it, but I don't have a fucking choice. Right. Some people just, they can just pay what is it now, 12, 15 bucks a month for Spotify, something like that? Yeah. If you can pay that and listen to all music, then do it. But I I love Bandcamp and I do really wish that people would use it. It's the perfect idea for music, but Mm -hmm. it's kind of one of those things where until everybody starts using it, it's not really going to work. Not going to be viable. Mm -hmm. We're we're bringing you down, everybody. <laughs> uh, let's bring everybody back up. Let's talk about yes. what we're drinking tonight. Ooh, evil! Your drink looks very simple and beautiful. <laughs> what are you drinking? I'm just drinking some Four Roses bourbon. I love Four Roses. My lady brought it home for me tonight, so you should marry that girl. Four Roses. It's Valentine's Day week. <laughs> she bought me some oh, Four I Roses, get it. so. Uh, yeah, I just had a friend who was building a bar. She spent a lot of money too. And she was asking for recommendations on her first kind of bar build. And she showed me the picture of the bourbon. I was like, yeah, you should go four roses. That's a very good. 
Yeah. That's a really good, that's, everybody likes Four Roses. I was just going to say, I don't know anyone who likes whiskey or bourbons that doesn't think highly of Four Roses. Agreed. They make good stuff. Evil, I am showing you my drink because I think you are going to be able to guess what it is. Ignore the cherry on the bottom. Okay. And maybe the lighting isn't that good. Maybe this you can see a little better. The red is throwing me. I know. Uh, (laughs) Um, Do you want a big, huge, fat hint? Sure. You have drank these on the podcast before. Oh, really? That could be many things (laughs) at this point. Okay, so ingredients. Can you imagine in five years us trying to come up with new drinks for the podcast? Oh, my God. It's going to be fun. We're just going to invent our own for... That's part of why I went with just bourbon tonight. I'm like... (laughs) (laughs) I'm out of drinks already. (laughs) Ingredient one, chartreuse. Ooh, yum. Ingredient... I think I know what it is. Is it the last word? Yeah, it is. Yeah, with a cherry in it. That's... And here's the thing. I added a cherry in it. I didn't use London. I used Hendrix gin. Mm. And holy shit, it's good. I've had them with Hendrix. Megan loves Hendrix. That's her gin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I didn't think it would be great, but I had my Tangray and my Hendrix sitting there and I was like, eh, I'm going to try it. Give it a whirl. Yeah. I like Hendrix. It's it's a yummy. Really Hendrix good. makes a great gin and tonic. The last word and just some straight up bourbon. That's what we're drinking tonight. We're going to take a break and we're going to get back to it. We are going to talk a couple scores. I have a feeling that it's going to end up being much more about the composers than the scores. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know how to teach this one to you, so I'm just going <laughs> to... <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> we'll be right back. Okay, we are back. We're going to talk scores. I picked a score to talk about. Uh, Evil picked a score to talk about. Actually, do you know, because I was reading it, and I get it, but I don't get it, because it seems real convoluted, the fucking difference between a soundtrack and a score. I get that a score is supposed to be more symphonic. Here's how I would differentiate the two. This is just me personally. I say score is the accompanying music and or sounds in the feature-length film. Mm -hmm. The soundtrack is the compilation sold as an album. So then, technically, my Blade Runner album. Because here's the thing about the Blade Runner album. It's not the full movie soundtrack. Right. It's not the full movie score. Sure. Which, by the way, dude, this is might be the coolest vinyl I own. Oh, whoa. That's awesome. Did you get that for the episode? No, I had this before. You've had this? I'm a, oh, yeah. I fucking love Blade <laughs> Runner. I, what a great film, man. Yeah. I have the new one too, the 2049. Spoiler, yours is Blade Runner. Whoops. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I can edit it. So is that a soundtrack then? When I think soundtrack, I think of like The Crow. I think of... See, that's, uh, that's kind of what I'm getting at is... So let's say like yeah. Cable Guy, which 
Okay. Fucking amazing soundtrack. And most of right. the songs were written for that movie. Yeah. Jerry Cantrell and Silverchair and whoever else. Yeah. Those songs are not on albums. They're for that movie. Sure. So is that a score or is it still just a soundtrack because it's so, it's like band songs? This is... Let's just talk about me and how clever I am for picking Trick or Treat <laughs> because yeah. it was both. I, I That was a legit, I mean, <laughs> I, I yes. purposefully picked that because it's a cool soundtrack, but it's also part of the score. All but two of those songs are worked into the film. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Here's the thing is there are films that release both soundtracks and original scores yes. as musical releases. So... Maybe my whole theory is complete bullshit. No, <laughs> I think arguing with myself. I think it validates your theory. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> of course. Right. I'll take it. I'm smarter than I thought. We don't I was. know what the fuck we're. We don't know. <laughs> Evil. Why don't you tell us about what you picked? Okay, going into this, you and I were throwing ideas back and forth for this episode, and I wanted to pick a film that had an innovative, unique score that is integral and adds to the film in some way. It should mm-hmm. be it needs to be part of the art to me. I'm a stupid old school Star Wars fan. I would have loved to like gush about John Williams, but come <laughs> on, that's like that's season ten when we're <laughs> out, <laughs> yeah, right? He, when we're he, phoning it in, we could do episodes <laughs> on him, right? Or you know, spaghetti western stuff and Neil Morricone stuff is oh, man. so awesome. But also a little on the nose. I mean, come on, that's that's. I feel like we should it, do that I, though soon. <laughs> I don't care if it's on the nose. <laughs> <laughs> I found two that I sent to you, and and the one that we're going with tonight is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. What did you think when I when I pitched that to you? What was your initial thought? So honestly, my initial thought was confusion. Mm -hmm. And I think Really? Yeah. And I think that might be what you're going for because and this is a testimony to how amazing the score is. I have never thought about the music from that movie. Right. It's always been completely inconsequential until I fucking listened to it, (laughs) until I started paying attention. And I think that's the whole point of the score. That's why I picked it. Okay, Uh, let's put all the cards on the table. I wouldn't have picked it on my own. I actually did some research and like... The Google told me how innovative this score was, so... Oh, <laughs> you fucking cheater. <laughs> <laughs> I had several ideas. The good, the bad, and the ugly was one of them, but I'm like, this is too easy. You know, oh we, we should talk... That should be its own episode. Just Agreed. It. Agreed. And when I saw this, I'm like, oh, this is genius. And then I dive in. Number one, what a great film. Oh, God, yeah. And then I listen to the soundtrack, and you I know, dig actually, into who created it, and I'm like, okay, this is it. Honesty time here. Until this week, I'd never seen this movie all the way through. Oh, my God. I had read the book twice. Okay. I I love this book. Yeah. But I I had never seen the movie all the way through. And holy shit, this movie is... Right? Yeah. It's very rare that you love a book and then you watch the movie and the movie's awesome. This movie is fucking awesome. Yeah, like Fight Club and this. (laughs) That's it. So One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, uh, 1975 movie directed by Milos Forman, who 
It's an Academy Award winner. He also he won the Academy Award for directing this. Also won for Amadeus in the 80s. Great director. Yeah. Stars Jack Nicholson. One of his greatest performances. Mm-hmm. Maybe his greatest, arguably. It could be, I haven't put enough thought into it, but it could be argued it's his one of, if not his greatest performance. Now you got me thinking. Like, to stack it up against the rest. It's and, so good. Yeah. I mean, The problem playing. is I am a massive fucking stanley kubrick hard on so uh well okay but no this is he's amazing in this perfect prime too it's it's yeah evil i have a very serious question for you though okay how the fuck do you pronounce this composer's name i i'm going with (laughs) jack nietzsche like like the philosopher okay the more i dug into this the more interested i became because the guy is kind of a mystery he's fascinating he's super fascinating he's worked with everybody well not everybody but with a laundry list of famous musicians and film industry i mean he's his work is he has a crazy resume insane i still know nothing about him yep yeah this movie was it was huge it was the second movie to win all five major academy awards best picture best actor best actress best director and best screenplay it was the second wow it was preceded by it happened one night which was a 1934 film (laughs) and it didn't happen again until 1993 silence of the lambs holy shit wow which when i saw that i couldn't help but think of eric cartman playing in his basement (laughs) playing the lambs anyway (laughs) so the artist or the composer is jack nietzsche who was nominated for an academy award for this film he is like we said a fascinating character in both film and the music industry he's collaborated with kind of a who's who's list of Mm -hmm. 60s and 70s rock i mean he was phil Spector's right hand man in producing which if any of you know who fucking Phil Spector was and the insane fucking person that guy was. If he was that guy's right-hand man, then not only was he... Because Phil Spector was a psychotic yes. murderous. Yeah, he's literally in, incarcerated for shooting for murder. a lady in a mouth in his mansion in 2003. Yeah, yeah, he kidnapped... The, just, he's a piece of shit. Completely. Psycho. Unfortunately, or what, however you want to say it, he was also possibly one of the greatest musical production minds yeah. of all time ever yeah they did every, everything together yep <laughs> <laughs> so i don't know what, what that means what do you do <laughs> i mean yeah. <laughs> he was phil specter's arranger and conductor he helped pioneer with the what they call the wall of sound production technique yep. with notable on I can Tina Turner's track deep mountain high. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a highlight of that production technique kind of coming into prominence. Nietzsche was in the wrecking crew, which is a backing band for a ton of pop artists, including the monkeys, including the beach boys. No shit. This guy's worked with, like I said, a laundry list of rock legends he played keys on multiple Rolling Stones albums. Yeah. Including like Paint It Black. Paint it Black some yeah. of their biggest hits. He's credited as playing the Nietzsche phone, which is just, I mean, <laughs> one of the producers was like, yeah, that's, I was just kind of a fancy term for a piano or an organ mic to specific way, but unique enough that they, he introduced the Stones to Ry Cooter. Oh, wow. Right? Holy shit. <laughs> I didn't know that. Collaborated with Neil Young going back to Buffalo Springfield. Yeah. Played electric piano with Crazy Horse. And uh-huh. this this is where... This is where you became a huge fan, right? <laughs> I know exactly where you're going with this. <laughs> okay. First of all, you know, 
hanging out with Phil Spector. This guy's sketchy. Uh, Nietzsche, yes. in particular. He struggled with addiction issues, depression issues. He allegedly pistol whipped one of his ex-wives. I mean, he was a troubled guy with lots of demons, wildly creative. Mm-hmm. So take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. I liked him for this quote that I'm going <laughs> to say here. Mm-hmm. So he was touring with Neil Young. In support, I think, of the album Harvest, he was like really starting to kind of struggle with his addiction issues and his depression. And here's a quote I found. He frequently spewed obscenities into his vocal mic, leading Young's sound engineers to disconnect it and often quarreled with David Crosby, who joined the tour's (laughs) final dates to assist with vocal harmonies. (laughs) <laughs> so i gotta like him a little bit yeah <laughs> just for that he fucking because... fought with david crosby all the time <laughs> <laughs> that made me smile when i found out that was <laughs> i was God. like there are two or three things on here that i was like holy shit this guy is perfect for evil yeah. and that was one. that was one of them yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that was hilarious <laughs> his score work is crazy yeah he did the score for the exorcist which That'll be talked about, I'm sure, within the next couple right. of years. Mm-hmm. So Exorcist 73, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, 1975. These are just highlights. He did a bunch of other score work as well. An Officer and a Gentleman in 1982, which he was nominated for an Academy Award for the Best Original Score and won an Academy Award for co-writing a Best Original Song. Yeah, which that was the other reason I thought... Oh, he's perfect for evil because that's that's the <laughs> Joe Cocker connection right Joe there. Joe Cocker, yeah, Just a beautiful, yeah. just a beautiful song. Yeah, Joe Cocker and Jennifer Warrens. And then this interested me as well. He did the score for a 1984 film called Starman, which I vaguely remember. But here's the interesting thing: that was directed by John Carpenter. So John Carpenter lets someone else do score work for one of that's, his films. Wow. So not, not a horror film. That's crazy. Still interesting. Yeah. The guy's a heavy hitter. Very. I mean, he, like we said, troubled demons everywhere. Maybe that helped as Exorcist <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. This is a film that took place in the setting of a, a mental hospital in the state of Oregon. So this is like the perfect guy to write the score for this. Someone totally. with some demons, someone who who is super talented, but also has some struggles and a darker side too. So I thought, you know, like I said, when I started diving into the actual specifics of this soundtrack, I'm like, this is this was mm-hmm. the perfect choice. You hit everything that I found intriguing mm-hmm. about him. And I think you're exactly right that it is just fascinating that after you really get to know this guy's story and then you watch this movie again yeah. and just listen to the score by itself, it is kind of the epitome of eerie uh-huh. and it's just so perfect. Yes. I don't know it's, anything about the guy, whether he was good or bad. I mean, if he's pistol whiffing his wife, he's not good, but you can be a piece of shit and still be a fucking genius. Yeah. He's definitely capable of some heinous things. He but, proved you know. with this. I mean, if he did Exorcist, he sure. did all this other sure. shit. But and, yeah. this piece of work alone, to me, proves that he was completely brilliant. I agree. So I started this by listening to what we would define as just the soundtrack. That what, yeah. what Spotify has listed as the tracks. As a as a group of tracks, it was really interesting. It didn't there. It doesn't feel congruent. This isn't something you would just listen to. You know, it's not. No, like, it's fucking <laughs> insane. 
It's, yeah, right. And it's, and if you're listening to the soundtrack, I bought the vinyl cause I found it really cheap after evil said he was thinking about doing this. And I said, Hey, do it because it's like four <laughs> bucks at my record store. Um, right. I turned the vinyl on every single one of these songs. It could be from a different fucking soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> like a new song starts and it's like, this is the same movie. What the hell? Well, and I think <laughs> those were some purposeful choices. Totally. The order of the tracks on the soundtrack are not even remotely close to the order that they appear in, in the film. So I'm going to try to make some sense out of this. Mm-hmm. And in fact, like a couple of the tracks on the soundtrack weren't even him, even though he's credited as creators for him. He, these are not his, just a couple. I'm going to not talk about the soundtrack order. I'm going to kind of go through to go back to kind of one of the criteria that I was using to pick. I wanted to find a score that was integral to the storytelling of the film. That to me is what makes it meaningful and worthy of us talking about, right? Yep. So here's the interesting thing. There's not a lot of information about the score. Not much at all. I remember I started researching this and this was the line of my thought process. I went onto the soundtrack and I listened to it. This is good. And I started trying to research the soundtrack and I was legitimately like, like, has evil started <laughs> researching this yet? Cause I might need to let him know, like, dude, there is fucking no, I, fuck all for this. And, and, and it wasn't until I got to the guy that I was like, Oh no, he's going to be okay. Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but it's true. It's hard as hell to find anything sure. about this score. That intrigued me even further. And so mm-hmm. I'm going to be doing some mind reading here is what I'm going to be doing. Cause I'm going to try to put make putting sense the evil stank on it. Yeah. Out of why he made the choices and put the tracks into the film the way he did. And that's the best I can do. Like, I know I'm supposed I to be love that. teaching you about this, but no, fuck that. That's perfect. Yeah. I'm just going to make some shit up and tell you well, how that's it is. what teachers do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the first thing I did is I listened to the soundtrack as it was served up by Spotify and it made no sense at all. I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> and so I'm like, all right, I'm going to I'm gonna watch the film and kind of like take some notes and piece this thing together. In doing that, I found that kind of almost in the center of the soundtrack order, there's a track called Charmaine, which is a song that was written in the 20s as a waltz. Mm-hmm. It's a famous tune. It's in tons of movies. You see it everywhere. The version in this film was recorded in 1951 by an Italian conductor who goes just by one name, Mantovani, I'm probably butchering that, and his orchestra. And it's like one of the more famous versions of the song. There's many versions of this song. For people who haven't seen this film, it was in 1975, so spoiler alert, we got to talk about the film a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> the film yeah. is about this character. I'm just calling him Jack Nicholson because Jack Nicholson's playing Jack Nicholson in this film. It's He's Jack. Jack Nicholson. Yeah. He's a kind of a, a violent character that is committed into this mental institution for, you know, rehabilitation. He's the protagonist. Well, I don't know if he is the protagonist, and I'll get to that towards the end. This is a problem, too, kind of like what you were saying with The Sign of the Times, is the main thing that he was in trouble with was, like, statutory rape. Yeah. Which, not saying it's right, but back then, I don't think it was viewed the same as it is now. No. I think it was, like, a 15 or 16-year-old to make more sense of this book and movie back then that was like a i don't deserve to be in a psychiatric ward i'm just here because that's the law sort of thing well he he was initially incarcerated for that charge and then he was just super violent he kept getting into fights yeah allegedly was faking some insanity stuff to get out doing work 
in his oh, that's right. normal that's right. incarceration. Yes. Anyway, yeah. he winds up in this mental hospital interacting with the patients there. The main antagonist is Nurse Ratchet, one of the most... Like, Top five villains of all time, right? Oh, man. <laughs> so subtle and nuanced and yet so incredibly... like You yeah. hate her so much by the end of the film. It's like how from Space Odyssey, <laughs> Hannibal Lecter, Nurse yeah. Ratchet are kind of on the... That's yeah. my little pyramid. Well, and, and to d- draw a parallel with Silence of the Lambs, the next film to win all five awards. She won an Academy Award. Jack yep. won an Academy Award. This thing, it is a good film. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. The dynamic of, of this facility, I think this track, Charmaine, is sort of like the centerpiece of the film. Mm-hmm. And you'll see these shots of this record player, this vinyl player. It's playing this song, and it's kind of the background music of this menagerie, of this weird interplay between the orderlies and the nurse and the patients and and this orchestral waltz written in the 20s. The actual track that we're listening to is written in the 50s. It's very otherworldly, and yet still grounded in reality somewhere sometime somehow yeah he does it a couple times on this where he brings in a waltz very specifically a waltz to try to right and i'm going to argue that they're all based off of this as this is the thread woven into the order of the universe of this facility and the little microcosm that it is okay then this unknown gets introduced into this environment which is jack nicholson's character Mm -hmm. there's an altercation between Jack and the nurse, he wants to watch a baseball game on the television, Mm -hmm. right? And she's like not having it. And he kind of goes and sits down and sulks in front of the television. And then he gets this bright idea that he's just going to pretend like there's this game playing. And he starts like calling the game like he's an announcer and everyone gets into it. And she, you can see that she's pissed and wants order. Like he's shaking the jar full of insects, right? Mm -hmm. That's when this track called Play the Game starts playing. And it's a Jack Nietzsche take on that waltz, but it's just yeah. a little bit different and a little bit quirky and a little bit it's, otherworldly. It's got some strumming guitar in it. It's it's unnerving. It is. and But yeah. it's still happy and light. But What you're touching on is that's my biggest takeaway from this score. It's so peaceful, but it's unnerving. Mm-hmm. He has this way of taking something that's real calm and peaceful, like a waltz, and adding some weird timing or an instrument that doesn't yep. belong super subtly to just it's just off a little bump bit with your head the <laughs> whole time it's so unbelievably yes. brilliant you know the film progresses he's making friends with the patients he busts them out they go on this big adventure and there's a scene where he like climbs the fence and he gets this bus and loads them up and then we get a little bit further into it's another string arrangement but with some strummed guitar and violin it's super quirky yeah they're off on this adventure and now they're all of a sudden they're out of this environment and the music changes yep so it's not based on that Charmaine main track anymore because they are completely out of the environment he takes them out they go on this boat journey they go fishing it reminds me of like Jimmy Buffett on psychedelics exactly lots of xylophone lots of guitar and slide Yeah. yeah you know yeah. And it's very different from the waltz-based stuff it's that po- we it's experience in the institution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fun and exciting. They eventually come back, and of course, they get reprimanded. They 
do some electroshock therapy on Jack. It's like really disturbed film. It's a fucked uh, up story. Yeah. Then it's there's this party scene where you know Jack's just like trying to rile these people up and getting them to live. You know, getting them to get outside of this box that they're in and essentially under the thumb of this nurse he throws this party mm -hmm. they're basically throwing a rager in this facility at night and you see them they're pouring booze into their little medication cups and stuff and going wild and crazy and it's back to the waltz but it's mm -hmm. even more weird it's the timing's a little more off this party happens there's some christmas music playing they're like <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> which <laughs> like, what just for evil Another thing that evil loves. Oh my god, that's tall. Oh, you're so right. <laughs> I know. Oh, I didn't even think this about movie, that. This movie score was made for you, dude. Things are in chaos at this point. We're getting towards sort of the climax of the movie. I don't want to spoil this film too much for people. Evil, it, it came out in the 70s. If they I haven't know, seen it yet. I would, no, I would I hate to it. rob that movie. I, I get it. Because it's one of those movies that's old enough to where... Sure. Go watch this movie. It's one of the greatest movies you'll ever see. I'll, I'll say this. There's there's a character in the film who's kind of... He's like the sort of the naive point of view. And has a moment with a lady friend in the movie. And he's <laughs> probably the most abused by the nurse. Oh, God. We're leading up to kind of an altercation with the nurse. But when he's with this, this lady... She's, I think, actually a lady of the night during this party. They snuck some prostitutes in. Mm -hmm. Another... Well, it's called um, ominously named The Last Dance. Hopeful and yet melancholy at the same time. Yeah. And then the climax of the film happens. And once again, I won't spoil it, but it takes a very dark turn. This is a movie that makes you laugh. It's, it has ups and downs and it's fun. And then it gets super dark. Yeah. And we'll just say it removes the foreign invader from the environment. Mm -hmm. And what happens Charmaine starts playing again. Everything's back to normal. And now we're going to talk about the <laughs> yeah. main theme. And this is the music that you, you said sounds like it has theremin in it. And it's, mm -hmm. and it is the emergence of what I would say is the actual hero of the film, which is the chief. Mm -hmm. I think this yes. film is his hero's journey. Totally is. It's called Act of Love. Mm -hmm. When you watch the movie, it's one of the most heartbreaking and yet triumphant scenes possible i mean it's like the perfect ending of this film it really is the film opens with this theme it is so bizarre the music it reminds me of like a court jester harlequin pattern you know <laughs> yeah. court just it reminds me of that but it's got these other elements too there's like native american drums i think there's like irish tin whistle in there but played very dissonantly yeah there's tambourine there's rattles it's got this slow, kind of a lumbering beat to it. Mm -hmm. What you're thinking of as a theremin is actually a handsaw played with a bow. Oh, that, like wavery, high-pitched, right? I okay, <laughs> and I yeah, I could see that. It's nuts. Wow. This guy is Nietzsche is super creative and very talented, and put together one of the most unique soundtracks I think in film history I with this thing. Completely agree. The film opens with this the ending theme is a kind of a reprise of this with the same drums the weird dissonant whistling and the saw but then these orchestral elements build and it starts to become yeah. actually triumphant it's like it pulls you up out of the weird melancholy surreal experience and in somehow on a lighthearted note and then right at the end it brings you back down into the the original theme so it's like 
I don't know what to do with this, man. It's it's so it's, bizarre. It's really bizarre. It's very perfect, though. Mm-hmm. I feel like this was kind of around when people were finally aware of how fucked up the whole psych ward process was. Yeah. That was a big deal with this. And I'm mm-hmm. sure a guy like him that was going through what he was going through... It was kind of the perfect guy to accompany a piece of art. This could not have been written any better. No. It's one of the most unique pieces of art I've I've ever heard in my yeah, life. Yeah, I was sold when, you know, like I said, I cheated to find the thing, but that just put it on the list. And when I was sifting through things and actually listened to it and dug into Nietzsche and said, like, oh my God, this is... This is going to be so fun to talk about. And then I couldn't find any info on it. That made it like this mystery. <laughs> no, I know. I feel like Scooby-Doo and his friends like <laughs> hunting down some dude in a mask, you know? And Great choice, Evil. I am glad I own this. It is. It's an amazing movie. It's an amazing book. But if you read the book, you don't get to listen to the music. Right. And you just blew my mind. Books don't have soundtracks. That's true. All right, so that was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Man, I don't think I can top that one, but I'm going to try. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back. We are back and going a completely different tone here. <laughs> I have chosen to bring to our first sit down on scores from the 1982 sci-fi classic directed by Ridley Scott, Blade Runner. Evil, you strike me as a Blade Runner guy. I, I like Blade Runner quite a bit. It's, it's sci-fi noir. I dig it. It's Yeah, that's the perfect explanation. Yeah, yeah I have a confession. So, Uh-oh. <laughs> I didn't know that we were going to talk about Blade Runner until yesterday. What? I thought, <laughs> what? for some reason, I thought I was just going to mansplain to you about One Flew Over Cuckoo's Oh, Nest. shit. Yeah, and then you send the show notes, and I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> oh, shit. Oh. <laughs> okay. So here well, we so Blade Runner, the original Blade Runner, not to be confused with 2049, which I might talk about a little bit. Harrison Ford, it's considered, would you call this a cult classic? Both. I think it is a y- yeah, kind of a landmark film with a cult following. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, not many sci-fi movies from the early 80s would have stayed alive. Yeah. This being a big one, especially one that that's built like this, which we'll, right. we'll talk about Ridley Scott, the director. I don't need to go through who Ridley Scott sure. is. We all know who Ridley Scott is. You've seen alien and the, I mean, I don't know how many movies he's done. 
at least six. Yeah. Gladiator was one of the scores that I started with. I got paired out quickly, but that's a good one. One of them. Let's talk about Vangelis, who is a Greek composer mm-hmm. that comprised this score. I, I'm going to pronounce his real name as best I can. Evangelos Odysseus Papathanasu. He was born in Greece. Evil, his dad's name, I don't know, he's so Greek. <laughs> his dad's name was Odysseus. That's pretty Greek. That's fucking cool is what yeah. that is. When you're named after a character in a Homer epic poem, you're yeah. pretty Greek. <laughs> yeah. We'll get to talking about this score and how unbelievably revered it is and why. To know a little bit more about Vangelis, he's been doing music since he was incredibly young He went to music school. He lasted not quite a year and he fucking hated it. He quit in much the style of like a Harry Parch. This writer of scores of one of the probably most renowned scores, uh, a couple of them, is completely self-taught, which is kind of unheard of. He did not go to Berkeley. He did not go to Juilliard. He did not train with this and do that. He's fucking self-taught. That alone is kind of insane. And to put in perspective, when he decided that he would take this movie on, he had just won his Academy Award. His Academy Award being for Chariots of Fire. (laughs) Right. Which, maybe not so much nowadays, but at least in the 90s and late 80s, had to be one of the most used... That theme is so recognizable. Right? Especially in that era from like 80s, 90s, even early 2000s. The theme for Chariots of Fire is undeniably recognizable. I think even now in like sitcoms, when when they're doing like a silly like like running thing and you start hearing the... (laughs) Yeah. So he did Chariots of Fire, and he had been a successful artist from this point. He had been in bands, and he had he had done scores, all that sort of thing. But Chariots of Fire was definitely his apex. And at this point in time, he could do no wrong. He had also, I didn't know this, you know, one of my favorite shows of all time, Evil, is The Cosmos that Carl Sagan did. Yeah, yeah. He did the score for that. Wow. So go back and watch that, because, yeah, if I didn't fucking love... Vangelis That's before, awesome. before researching this I really love him now billions and billions of stars god I love that it's so yeah. good Carl Sagan's and, badass Carl Sagan is badass and I'm telling you I, it sounds nerdy as shit and it is but anybody out there go watch Cosmos I swear yeah. you don't have to be a nerd it's unbelievable it's so it well good. done it's so the, well the done the updated version's good the Neil deGrasse Tyson stuff's good it's really too. good yeah. But Carl Sagan's it's no Carl, Carl Sagan. Sagan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, agreed. <laughs> he completely built his own elaborate synthesizer system for this score. He wanted the accessibility of a full orchestra all by himself in real time. Whoa. Yeah. He has gone on record saying that most of his published work, including Blade Runner, even from years and years ago, including Chariots of Fire, comes from his first take with no overdubs. <laughs> 
Okay. So he gets a concept, which I can see in a movie like this. I don't know, man. I, I, I thought about this a lot. My big thing on this podcast that I've always said, to me, that does sound like bullshit, but mm. I... I'm a big fan of the urban legend. Yeah. Someday we're going to dissect Led Zeppelin. And I choose to believe every fucking insane thing <laughs> that we're going to talk about about them. So I just choose to believe that what he's saying is the truth. What really, really makes this score so unlike anything else and not really like anything that had been done before is his persistence for this to not be a score for the movie. He had tapes of scenes of this movie. This is a full artistic art of work in its own. You know, when something happens in the movie, he doesn't chase after it. It's not a, a mm -hmm. action reaction thing. He, he refused to do that. Oh, interesting. He takes no cues from the movie. He just works on the mood, no reactions. And to me, this completely paved the way for so many fucking sci-fi movies yeah. of the future. Just a completely different way to look at scores. If you listen to this again, or you watch the movie and you compare it to others, it's not like a, you know, all of a sudden he turns the corner and it's a, mm -hmm. it's nothing like okay. that. Okay. It's knowing that now, which I did not know because... Like I said, I just found out yesterday that we were going to do this. <laughs> so this, this film is like widely known and respected to be a sci-fi noir film. Mm -hmm. I wonder how much of that is due to that process in the creation of the soundtrack. Take that, like do a different soundtrack, a more like traditional film soundtrack. Does that take away that noir feel to it altogether. And I would venture to say, yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Like pacing is a huge component of the feel of Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. I think I'm starting to understand why. No, you're absolutely right. And it's a huge, there's such a problem in movies with its directors. And I should say that, let me reword that. I have a problem <laughs> with. I like absolutes. Let's stick with, there is such problems. <laughs> There yeah. this, this. Every fucking one of you <laughs> has a huge problem. <laughs> to me, most movies, most scores are so impatient. I am a fan of super slow burns, mm -hmm. dialogue, showing a person going through the motions. I'm a huge fan of movies, you know, like The Revenant and mm. I don't have you ever seen the 2049 version of Blade Runner? I have not seen it yet kind of on purpose i don't i'm gonna tell you evil that is definitely in my top five maybe top three favorite movies of all time really okay it, so it is good it blew right. my fucking mind your endorsement of it is carries a lot of weight so that'll... but movies like this are so rare where they just let the mood happen. Have you ever had a friend, I know you have, who <laughs> like wants to show you something really cool that they think is cool? And they're watching you watch it and they're like leading you with their body language and the noises they're making. Yeah. I feel like that's how a lot of composers write scores for movies. Holy shit. Yes. <laughs> wow. That is a fantastic metaphor. In turn, so many fucking movies rely on the scores to do that. We talk about horror films. Right. I think that's what's so special about this is the destitution of any of you that aren't listening that don't know Blade Runner, it's this dystopian, futuristic, 
bleak as fuck environment, big city. There are no more animals. Yeah. It's like nighttime and raining all the time. Pouring. Yeah. Yeah. So it's basically Chicago. (laughs) But Vangelis, the score just fits perfectly. I'll just say that. I just mentioned no animals. I'm sure that he did this on purpose and it's fucking crazy. But there's this scene where Harrison Ford's character, where Deckard goes in to talk to this. I'm not going to go into what the story of Blade Runner is, but essentially Harrison Ford is chasing down these symbiote clone replicants to kill them because they're very dangerous. Right. He's talking to this guy who helps create them and there's an owl in the scene i'm sure in the movie it's real owl but for the movie if that makes sense it's a fake owl like he's like is that real and they're like no because there are no more animals but what's weird if you pay attention in like the very next scene he's walking down the street and it's this you know pitch black pouring rain street you start hearing the score and there is this synthesizer version of an owl (sighs) basically starts playing it has this feel of he's like walking alone in a forest or something in the middle of a city it puts you in the weirdest places in this movie another really amazing thing about the score is that after this movie released which this by the way this is one of the first movies ever that had all the extra scene shit ended up having director's cut Mm -hmm. when it came out post theater and everything ridley scott was really unhappy with what they had not the editor editor had done to it yeah he ended up coming out with the director's cut and vangelis same thing they had fucked with the the score and wanted to release it and vangelis was so mad that he refused He refused to allow any of the rights to come out. And because of this, the studio hired an orchestra to basically redo this whole thing. And it's fucking awful. For like album release? Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. I didn't know that. That's crazy. It's hard to find, but you can find a couple of the songs on like YouTube and shit. It's so bad. I have a question. Does Spotify have a Taylor's version? (laughs) Evangelist version. (laughs) (laughs) That came out. People hated it. Vangelis and Ridley Scott were both like, yeah, that's not the music, guys. So have fun with that, whatever. It wasn't until 1994, 12 years after the movie released, that a Vangelis-approved version of the score actually came out. There's an article by Pressing Plant that came out, and there's a portion of it that I just thought was really, really fantastic, so I'm going to read that. The absence of this score created a vacuum. Curious fans of the movie, of Vangelis's work, of the cutting edge of electronic music composition filled the vacuum with their dreams of how the compositions may have developed away from the film's sequences. Hmm. Various enterprising individuals spliced together lo-fi reproductions of what could be heard within the film itself. A 1982 bootleg leak emerged, wreathed in aura-building rumors that the film's sound engineers were complicit in its release. In an example of the power of bootleg recordings for over a decade fans were able to be a part of a secret history inquiring illicit recordings steeped in the power that comes from knowing someone apparently didn't want anyone to hear them it was a talismanic object acquired only by the lucky the devoted or the enlightened so it built this huge following and kind of pre-reddit pre 
basically internet yeah. at that point. And it had this massive Jeez. following of people just desperately trying to find anything they could to listen to this. So the 90s saw the release of the score. The director's cut came out. The final cut, Ridley Scott released the final cut Mm -hmm. in 2007. Mm -hmm. And that led to Vangelis being invited to release his own revised and expanded cut of the soundtrack, which was this three-disc indulgence. But the release still failed to encompass all the music from the film. It just reconfirmed Vangelis' conception of the soundtrack, meaning the specific album he designed. And what I take away from that is what I originally said about Vangelis saying, basically, he does shit on the first take. Mm -hmm. What's he going to do? Redo (laughs) it? When I read that, that's when it hit me. It's like, oh, fuck, he's telling the truth. He did the score on first take shit. Uh. There are parts of the score that obviously he had written out. There's like a kind of this cool, weird 80s blues. And then he'll randomly have you know, like the cheesy 80s saxophone, like you were talking about a noir feel to it. Yeah. Johan Johansson, who wrote the 2049 score, which I have a feeling someday I'm going to want to talk about too, because it's fucking brilliant too. Johan Johansson's quote is, he's talking about Vangelis's original score, which by the way, hey, Will you do the score for the sequel to Blade Runner? (laughs) Just the sequel to one of the most cult-following scores of all time? Yeah, no problem. He He has an incredible way of creating these big, resonant, atmospheric sound worlds. His use of space, the acoustic resonance of a space where you produce sound, he does this tremendously well, and he uses this as a part of his composition. The other cool thing that I like too is he was writing this at the same exact time that Kraftwerk was doing what Kraftwerk does. So it's cool to think of, it's like this all out assault of synthwave. Yeah. That yep. you've got like Kraftwerk doing the cool, really poppy shit. And then you've got Vangelis doing kind of the weird mm-hmm. science of music soundscape, inventing soundscape kind of. 1982. It is like square in the middle of, I don't want to say my absolute favorite, but one of my mm-hmm. favorite eras of music, which is like 1978-ish to 84-ish. And I'm not talking about style. I'm not talking about the content of the music, just the, the way the music sounds. I don't know what was going on production-wise, whatever it is that era of music production something about it there are features to the sounds that were produced in that era that resonate with me somehow and maybe that's just because of my age and that's i was you know i don't think that's it then, i think it really was it, things were being invented somewhere 84 85 ish things started sounding really crystalline digital yes and prior to it they didn't have like the polish or nuance it was like in that era like 78 84 is one of the reasons I love that the classic Van Halen era, but there's so much stuff outside of the rock music genre, craft work, synth wave stuff. There yeah. is something about the sonics of that era that is just, it's special. It really is. It's one of the most special eras of music for me. I agree. And because of that, for the world. 
It's, <laughs> it was so incredibly inventive. It is, man. I... There are parts in this score, and I can't find the quote in front of me, but there was a composer that was talking about the score, and I had a cool quote. But essentially what he was saying is that there are parts to this score that nobody has been able to figure out how he did. Yeah. I believe it. He keeps his shit real close to his chest. He doesn't tell anybody how he makes it. Like he, mm -hmm. people know what synths he uses and stuff. But yeah, it's basically the quote is saying that there are certain things in this score that people do not know how he made that sound. Which, I mean, how cool is that? <laughs> Vangelis is everywhere, well beyond Blade and Chariots. He has over like 50 albums of work. So if you were really into Blade Runner, you can find him anywhere. That's pretty much it. The only other thing I'll say is that the end titles of Blade Runner, and it's just called the end titles, Blade Runner end titles. If you are any sort of fan of Synthwave, it's basically the best Synthwave song that will ever exist. <laughs> it pretty much started the whole fucking thing. So at least put that on your playlist. It deserves it. And that's Vangelis' Blade Runner. How influential was, I mean, this is a rhetorical question. We're just we're, we were talking about we're bowing at the altar of this music here, but like, how influential was that? Like, it not only set the bar, but established like the genre. The last uh, Halloween episode, we talked about it follows. Mm -hmm. It follows owes yep. everything to Blade Runner mm -hmm. soundtracks in general. Just Harrison Ford in this, his whole demeanor, his whole melancholy, bleak. I can't think of a score to a movie that encompasses its character better right. than this score. It may be like fucking the new Mad Max, mm -hmm. but yeah. it's just, it's fucking perfect, man. That's bait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On the next. Have you, uh, you, have you ever played the Mass Effect series of video games? I played the first one. The first one is what I want to talk about here. It okay, has an good. incredible score to it. It's, it is part of the immersive experience of that game. I can draw a parallel back to some of the original Star Trek film scores and Blade Runner 2. It's got a direct tie back to that. And I think that's... Are we going to have to do video game scores? Is that what you're saying? Uh, well... If we were going to do any of them, that's one of them to do. There's, I can't think of his name. I think it's Max something. The guy who did the score for the first game is definitely has ties to Blade Runner. If you're into the whole synthwave thing, any sort of, any of those bands, mm -hmm. it owes it to this. It really does. Yeah, it totally does. And that's pretty much it. Evil, we did it. Join us next week. We're going to, I don't know, volume three or something of DL's 10 out of 10s. We're going to get all 80s up in this. Oh, man, it's such a good one, too. Ugh. I'm so I excited. I am, like, beyond excited. Very excited. Versecourseverse.com. Go buy a hat or shirt or something. At Pod. Write us. Tell us uh, some other scores that you want to hear us talk about. Write us a dirty limerick. Write us a dirty limerick. Tell us your opinions of Nurse Ratched. <laughs> Who is it? Give us your top five of the the greatest villains of all time. Um, <laughs> God, I kind of wish we were a movie podcast because that sounds really yeah. fun. <laughs> Evil, I feel like it's been it's too been long since bit, I yeah. talked to you about music. Yeah, it's kind of stupid, but I got you for the next two yeah. weeks. So, <laughs> <laughs> good night and good luck. <laughs> <laughs>